Interruptions. We've been in the series now. This is the fifth week as we wrap up the series of interruptions. And we've been looking at times in people's lives when Jesus shows up. When they're living life, normal life, whether it be the Apostle Paul or whoever it may be, and Jesus shows up and provides an interruption. And how do we respond in those interruptions that they're not just inconveniences, but they're divine interruptions, that God has a plan and a purpose. I know over the last few weeks talking with membership here at Bell Shoals, that, that word has come up many times in, conver in conversations of people talking about what was going on in their day. And they would say, man, I got interrupted today and started to see it not as an inconvenience, but maybe God was up to something with that interruption. You know, last week our lead pastor was here and he walked us through the story of looking at Lazarus and that Jesus delayed. Jesus was interrupted, but he delayed his response for a purpose. Well, this morning we're going to dive into the scripture and we're going to see another example where Jesus gets interrupted and an appeal is made to him to change course. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus experiences from someone else a faith that he had yet to see, a faith that was amazing. It would have been unseen. It was unprecedented. It caused him to take notice. In church, what would it be like if we were people of faith that others took notice? Not of a selfish sense, but a genuine sense of a godly faith in the God of the universe. So we're gonna unpack that this morning. I invite you to grab your copy of God's word and go to Luke chapter seven. Whether you have a physical Bible or you pull out your phone, go to Luke chapter seven there in the New Testament. We're gonna be walking through Luke seven, one through 10 this morning. And so while you're flipping there, a little bit of context is Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. Most famous sermon of all time. He's been teaching about what does it mean to be a genuine follower? What does it look like to be a genuine follower? And so he's just finished that at the end of his message, he challenged the hearers, not just to be hearers, not just to be listeners, but to respond, to put the truth that had been presented into action. And so Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount where we pick up here in Luke 7, verse 1. It says, after he had finished all of his sayings, being the Sermon on the Mount, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was just a little bit of a distance around the corner from where he preached this message. And so Jesus preaches and he leaves. He relocates a little bit around the corner to Capernaum. And then here, these next two verses kind of set up the story for us this morning. In verse two, it says, now a centurion had a servant who was sick, sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So let's set up kind of the key players in the story this morning. You have this centurion, which is a Roman army captain, one in the military over about a hundred soldiers. So this is a military leader, one who is steady in action, strong, ready for challenges. One who is a leader as a Gentile, as a Roman army captain. He has servants as well. And here in this text says that he has a servant who is sick, which it's common for sick and death to take place in their culture. The average life expectancy was about 40 years. So it was very common for there to be centurions all over the place. All these Roman army captains leading hundreds of soldiers, having servants and then death. Those were very common. But look with me here 
at the end of verse two, this is what is uncommon. Now, centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death. And then it said, who was highly valued by him. That's uncommon. See, in their day, centurions would have servants. And if one got sick or you would just kind of push them aside and replace them. They were just replaceable. But here we see a little glimpse into the character of this Roman army captain, that he has a servant that he genuinely cares about, says he highly valued him. This is a little bit of a foreshadowing into the character of this individual that we're gonna look at in the story. A little bit of a glimpse, maybe who he really is. So let's look in verse three. The centurion has the sick servant. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, we don't know exactly what he heard about Jesus, but stories were spreading all over the place about this guy, Jesus was performing miracles and was healing the sick and was doing incredible miracles. And so he heard about Jesus. And so this centurion, he sent to him, to Jesus, elders of the Jews, asking him, Jesus, to come and heal his servant. So unpack this, kind of this baseline for a minute. This Gentile, non-Jewish individual, Roman army captain has a sick servant that he cares for deeply and he hears about Jesus. Here's what Jesus is doing. Miracles and things are happening. He could have thought about just himself. But instead he thinks, man, I would love for this Jesus to step in to this servant's life and, and heal him. See, when you go back to Matthew, you know this servant was paralyzed and was terribly suffering in pain and was on the verge, was on the verge of death. Though we hear about the compassion in this centurion, we also see that he's a smart guy. He knows that Jesus is Jewish. He knows that he's a Gentile. And in their culture, that's not common for Gentiles and Jews to work together. So he says, hey, I'm gonna send Jewish elders these are Jewish elders from a synagogue, synagogues that Jesus, who's a Jew, would be teaching in. So he said, hey, if I send Jewish elders from a synagogue that Jesus teaches in, there's already a natural connection. So why don't you guys go represent me, speak to Jesus, and there's a higher probability that maybe you can convince Jesus to stop whatever he's doing, change course, be interrupted, find a new trajectory, and make his way to my home and to heal the servant. So that's the baseline of the story this morning. A centurion or the sick servant who's sending Jewish elders to make an appeal, to represent him on a mission of can they convince this guy, Jesus, to change course. So this morning, we're gonna see three aspects of faith. We're gonna see these elders that are sent on this mission. We're gonna see their perspective on faith and how do you make an appeal to Jesus? Then we're gonna see the centurion himself. He's gonna make an appeal to Jesus. And at the end, we're gonna see how Jesus responds to this appeal and Jesus's response to their faith. And so the elders' perspective on faith, we're gonna see in a moment how they walk this out. Imagine they're sent, they're pulled into the centurion and say, hey, listen, I need you guys to get together. You should go find this guy, Jesus. And your mission is to convince him to get over here and heal my servant. You guys got it? We got it, boss. Boom, they're off. Not a lot of direction, not a lot of clarity. You guys are big boys. You can figure it out, make it happen. So you imagine these guys are debating, discussing. They got to come up with a strategy, right? If you've, if you've ever had the opportunity to make a, a presentation to somebody and you know you probably just have a limited amount of time, you've got to come out of the gate with a sentence that catches their attention, right? 
You got to have that moment, that initial opening statement that would cause Jesus to stop in his tracks and go, wow. Hmm, I'll listen to these guys. So as they're either on the way or before, they've got to come up with a strategy, a strong opening statement to get Jesus's attention, to change his course. So look with me in verse four. It says, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly. First thing you can take away there is these guys weren't just kind of mailing it in. Like, well, we're sent, we'll just do it. We don't think we're gonna be successful. So we'll give it a shot, but it's not that big of a deal. No, it says in verse four, they pleaded with Jesus earnestly, passion, zeal, focus. And this was their opening statement. This was what they came out of the gate with. This was their moment to Jesus. They said, hey, Jesus, this centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Their opening statement, as they debated, what are we gonna do to appeal to Jesus? They said, hey, this centurion's an awesome guy. He's done a lot of amazing stuff. Let's come out of the gate and declare to Jesus that the centurion is worthy for Jesus to change course and go do what he is requesting. Such a bold statement as they appeal based off the actions of the centurion. So look with me in the next verse as they unpack Jesus This guy's worthy. And then he gives us the two reasons. Why is he worthy in verse five? Number one, for he loves our nation. And number two, he's the one who built us our synagogue. Big idea, he is worthy. Two reasons, one, he loves our nation. Now imagine, step back for a second. This is a Gentile Roman army captain who loves the Jewish people loves the nation of Israel. That is uncommon. This is an exceptional man. Maybe he flew the the flag at their home or maybe he knew the national anthem. He wore their colors. But regardless, he was breaking cultural barriers by leaning into the Jewish people. Not leaning against them, but leaning into the Jewish people, for the Jewish people. And these elders thought, man, we can appeal to Jewish man, Jesus, that this Gentile loves your people, loves your nation. Seems like a great logical argument. And then their second statement where they thought, this is it. This is the zinger. We're going to convince Jesus here. And he said, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Not only does he love the Jewish people, but he bankrolled the synagogue. He spent his money, a man of of wealth, a man of means on a Jewish synagogue. Now imagine, see, they knew Jesus was a teacher. Surely when you appeal to Jesus in this way, hey, Jesus, the synagogue you have taught in, this is the guy that helped was the main financer for that. He paid the majority of it. This guy built that building. Come on, Jesus. Surely you're going to, surely this is the last statement. We're going to appeal that he's a good guy, but now we're going to appeal to money. We're going to appeal to stuff. Hey, Jesus, he spent a lot of money on a synagogue. Throw him a bone, change course, come heal his servant. Think, think with me like this. This was kind of their approach. No, I am a proud graduate of the University of Florida. Come on, come on. University of Florida, that's right. And today I will tell you, we are the mighty Gators. Because this fall, this is probably not going to be our year. So today we are the mighty Gators. But come September, October, November, I probably won't be talking much about the Gators this year. Hoping that will be different 
in the days ahead. But imagine I'm a, a proud uni University of Florida graduate. I met my wife at the University of Florida and her parents have lived in Gainesville for 40 some odd years. And you know, there's a lot of allegiance to the city of Gainesville. Imagine if I declared my love for the city of Tallahassee. Whoa, right there. No, 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 man, Mr. Curry over here is getting all excited talking about Tallahassee, if you know him. Imagine if I talked about love for the people of Florida State, you know? See, the coach for Florida, we used to have a head coach years ago that wouldn't even mention the, the area. He would just say the team out West. He didn't wanna have any affiliation. Imagine if I leaned in and talked about a love for Tallahassee, the people of Florida State, that would be uncommon. And then if Florida State was to build a new football stadium and I had the means to bankroll that, and to pay for the new stadium. See, that was their strategy that if they then had to come and make an appeal to the president of Florida State, say, hey, listen, um, there's a guy from Gainesville, a UF grad, but he loves Tallahassee. He loves the people of Florida State. And he's the main guy that paid for our new football stadium. And he's got a request. You, you probably need to listen. See, that was their strategy. It's the same thing that was going on. That's their strategy with the elders was let's appeal to this financial economic aspect and surely we can convince Jesus. Yes, we're gonna appeal that he's worthy and you can understand why they thought he was an exceptional man. This is a Gentile who's leaning into the Jewish community, into the Jewish nation. They were arguing that his good deeds had warranted, had earned Jesus's response. His performance had merited Jesus to respond and give this man this request. It was a performance-based appeal, external-based, horizontal. It's kind of the same way that many times in our own culture, when we talk to people about what it means to follow Jesus, we usually fall in that same category. People say, hey, I, I've done this, I'm good. I'm gonna end up in heaven because I'm a good person because I've done this with my money, or maybe I've helped people or whatever it might be, then I'm a good person. I'm better than most people. I contribute to the community. We appeal many times based off our good works, our merits, our actions, our performance. So that's exactly what the elders were doing here. So sometimes it plays out that way in salvation that we have a wrong view of God, but if we're honest, sometimes even in the church, we can find in our own heart, that maybe we're walking through something and we begin to appeal, appeal to the Lord and say, God, I've been to church for years. Why aren't you doing this? God, I've, I've given money. God, I've given even beyond a tithe. I've given over 10% to you. Aren't you now gonna do this for me? God, I've been on mission trips, sacrificed vacation time, inconvenienced myself for the sake of telling others about you. Surely Jesus, now you're gonna do this for me. You hear that little bit of that tone that kind of seeps in with the elders rationale to Jesus and even with us sometimes in the church that that tone can seep in of, of our performance, that, that we are worthy, that we have earned this. We have to be cautious about that self-promotion self-exaltation, the same thing the elders were doing is they weren't really appealing to Jesus. They were saying, there's entitlement here, Jesus. This is a good guy and he loves your nation. He, bought, he paid for the synagogue. You have to come do this. They're making an appeal based off 
entitlement. Let me encourage you, this church, you might want to write this down. Don't hang your faith on the good things you've done. Don't hang your faith on the hook of the good things that you have done because that hook will fall. That hook will not hold, it will fall. If you base it on the good things that you have done, on your performance, on your merit, that hook will fall. It's actually already fallen. Romans 3.23 says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, none of us ultimately measure up. We don't wanna be judged by our actions what, what we've earned, because what we have earned is separated from him based off sin and our depravity. That's really what we've earned from God. So let's not hang our faith on our works. Let's hang our faith on what the Savior has done for us. If we hang our faith on him, hang our faith on his works, that hook will hold. It won't fall. And so the elders make this appeal to Jesus that's completely out of bounds, completely inappropriate. It amazes me to see Jesus' response at the beginning of verse six. And it says, and Jesus went with them. Though their appeal was completely out of bounds, Jesus still went with them. He could have pulled these guys aside, sat them down, said, do you, do you know who you're talking to right now? I don't care if this dude paid for a building. I am Jesus. Do you guys know who you're talking to? He could have beat them up and slapped them around. He could have put them in their place. But here it says, and Jesus listened to them. They made their appeal. They probably thought that they had done their deal really well done. And it says, and Jesus went with them. You know, last week when our lead pastor talked about Lazarus, Jesus delayed going to Lazarus. But this week, a Gentile that Jesus doesn't know, a servant that Jesus doesn't know, reasoning that makes no sense, that doesn't ever speak to the character of the man, only to his performance and what he has of influence. And yet, in spite of that, Jesus has compassion and he's interrupted and he goes with them. So we've seen the elders' perspective on faith, but let's look at the centurion here. It says here in, in verse uh, Verse six, and Jesus went with them. So Jesus has changed course. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. Now, now listen to this. This is amazing. He sends these elders out, these Jewish synagogue, religious elders. Hey, go represent me. But as Jesus gets closer, he sends friends. Well, it's likely that some people were with those elders and saw the presentation that was going on. They saw the PowerPoint presentation and they thought, this is nothing like this Roman army captain. This is not the guy that I know. This is not the way he presents himself. This is not the guy that would present himself in front of Jesus of one of arrogance and boasting. So word gets back to the centurion and he hears the way he has been presented. And yet Jesus still makes changes his course and is on the way to his house. And he's like, man, Jesus is coming to see you. He's like, all right, he pulls his friends together. He says, listen, your job is to go represent me a whole lot better than the elders did, right? This is his second chance. Jesus is on the way. He's almost at the house and he says, look, you're gonna represent me before Jesus, but I'm gonna tell you what to say this time. This time, I'm not just gonna leave it open-ended. 
You know, if you want it done right, do it yourself kind of thing. So I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to script it for you. This is what you're going to say to Jesus on my behalf, accurately reflecting my heart and who I am. So it says in verse six, and Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. And this is what they said to him. Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Do you see the completely different posture? The first word out of their friend's mouth. These other guys show up and they're like, you gotta do it, this guy's worthy. He sends friends and the first word out of their mouth is Lord. That's really all they had to say. That's a totally different posture, totally different positioning of submission, recognizing he is the master, he is in charge. And then he declares, Right there, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He's immediately flipping over the exact argument that the elders made that he says, I am not worthy. You see, his argument was not a horizontal comparison. The elders argument was a horizontal comparison. But here the centurion did a vertical comparison. And when he compared himself vertically, he realized that he's not worthy, that he's not one of significance. You see, the, the elders were promoting this guy's significance and the centurion was promoting his own insignificance. You know, in the world that we live in, we wanna posture ourselves, make everything look good for ourselves. Whatever makes us look good, the PR campaign moment, moment you gotta spin doctor it, twist whatever it is to, to show your angle, make yourself look good, promote yourself. That's exactly what the elders did. Make yourself look good, spin it all so it's just right. But the centurion in a vertical comparison realized he's not worthy. He humbly took that position. Everything that was said about him was still true. He did love the Jewish people. He had financed the synagogue. Those were all true, but he never appealed to that at all. He says, Lord, don't be troubled. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. If you're here this morning and you're like that centurion and you think, man, I'm so unworthy. What am I doing here at church? I need to get my life together. No, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. If you feel unworthy, if you feel like, man, this is too much for me. Well, that's the right place to be. That's the right heart to have. That's the right spirit to have an unworthiness, a humility. The scripture says in Romans 5, 8, that God shows his love for us. He displays it. That while we were still sinners, still sinners, messed up people, Christ died for us. Christ died for you. Christ died for for me. While we were still sinners, broken, messed up, unworthy people, Christ died for us. You see, the centurion, he saw Jesus for who Jesus is, and he saw himself for who he really is. When he did a vertical comparison, he recognized the greatness of Jesus, that he is Lord, that he is not worthy of him, that Jesus 
And then when he put himself under that category, under him, he realized the greatness of Jesus and his brokenness. The elders were all horizontal, all comparison, all performance, all, all about wealth and prestige and, and image. And the centurion's faith was just broken in comparison to the Lord, humility and humbleness. Look with me in verse seven. It says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you, Jesus, because I'm not worthy. Jesus, just say the word and let my servant be healed. Jesus, just, Jesus, just open your mouth. You'll be able to heal my servant. I don't know about you, maybe my mind runs back to Genesis chapter one, creation. Jesus opened his mouth and spoke and creation started. Creation started. You see here, the centurion is saying, look, Jesus, you can heal when you're up close and you can heal when you're at a distance. You don't have to touch my servant. You don't even have to see my servant. You don't even have to see me. Jesus, just say the word. Just like in Genesis 1 with creation, Jesus, just say the word. Oh, humility. Jesus, we don't even, I don't even have to bother you any further. Just say the word. And you look in verse 8 again as he continues his, his, through his friends, his argument to Jesus or his positioning to Jesus. He says, for I too am a man set under authority. He could have said, I'm a man of authority over all of these soldiers. But he says, no, I, I, I too am under authority. Get the humility. Man, I'm under authority, Jesus. And then he says, with the soldiers that are under me, I can say to one, go, and, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he, and he does it. He's posturing, telling him, look, I'm I'm explaining that I'm not so great, but even in the military with these hundred soldiers, if him in such limited authority, if he tells a soldier, hey, listen, come here, guess what he does? He comes. If he says, go there, guess what he does? He goes. He's like, if in my limited authority, if that's what happens as a Roman army captain, then Jesus, with your not limited authority, if you just would open your mouth, it will happen. Jesus, if you would just open your mouth, it would happen. Oh, he understood the authority of Jesus. And for us, in the story, for us in the New Testament era, as we fast forward, it's so important that we unpack this a little further to understand the reality of the gospel of Jesus. Later in the gospels, Jesus dies a brutal death on a cross he raises from the grave three days later, hangs on earth for about a month and then ascends back to the Father. And he offers us hope and salvation if we'll place our faith and trust in him. We see in the story, the centurion is really placing his faith and his trust in Jesus. Real faith is daily putting our faith and trust in Jesus. That's real faith. Think of it this way. Next summer, we're going to have the, the Summer Olympics, which I love the Summer Olympics, way more than the Winter Olympics. But uh, next summer, there's going to be these incredible fast races of the 100-meter dash and the 200-meter dash, and the, the fastest athletes in the entire world. When they get down on that starting line and they get in position, and they get organized right at that line, they put both of their feet in these little blocks, the starting blocks. 
allows them to have something to push off from. That's kind of their foundation to get started on at the beginning of that race. And when the gun sounds and they take off, they press off those blocks and they're flying. But the blocks they leave behind, they're the starting blocks. It's what they launch off from. It's what sends them out. And sometimes in our Christian faith, we think the gospel, the good news of Jesus is really like the starting blocks. It's that point of salvation, but then we run from the gospel. Sometimes we think that that's the moment that we get saved and we hear the good news of Jesus and that basic foundational truth that then we propel from it, we run from it. And we run to deeper things or greater things. But the reality is the gospel is like the track that we should be running on every day. That we should be running on the gospel every single day. The good news of Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, that he is worthy, that he, we should serve him, that he is majestic and mighty and holy and the king. That's what we run on every day in our position of humility. We should run on the track that's the gospel every day. See, we see the elders, their argument was performance, external, all that you can see. But the centurion looked in his heart and he looked into his heart and he examined his heart in comparison to the greatness of God. And he realized that he was broken and that he wasn't worthy. He wasn't amazing. That God was the only one that was worthy. And so let's see here in verse nine, Jesus' response to both of these that he experienced, the centurion's faith and the elder's faith. And here's Jesus in verse nine. And Jesus said this, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Maybe your translation says, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd that followed Jesus, he said, I tell you not even in Israel, have I found such faith? Not even in all of Israel have I found such faith. Jesus was amazed at this Gentile's faith. Remember Jesus, he's the, he's the author of our faith. He is the founder of our faith. He is the perfecter of our faith. And that same Jesus, looked at this Gentile man and said, this is amazing. I've never seen this. He stopped Jesus in his track. Faith that Jesus noticed. There's only two times in all the gospels that Jesus was amazed, that he was, that he was taken back. The other times in Mark chapter six, Jesus is in his hometown, Nazareth. He was sharing the good news and Jesus said that he was amazed at their unbelief. He was taken back. He was shocked by their unbelief. But in this story, Jesus is amazed at the belief of a Roman army captain. He's not Jewish. See, one of the things that makes this so amazing, yes, the statement of Jesus, if you'll just say it, Oh, Jesus, I believe you so much. If you'll just open your mouth, I believe you can do it without touching the servant, without seeing me. That's amazing faith, but it's deeper than that. Remember, this was a Gentile man, not a Jewish man. He hadn't grown up in the ministries of the synagogue as Jewish people would have. 
He paid for the synagogue, but he didn't get the blessing of the synagogue. Gentile man didn't grow up in the ministries of the synagogue, didn't grow up memorizing the scriptures. He didn't have all the blessing of that. He was a man of incredible wealth. We see in other parts of the gospels, the challenge of a man of wealth to come to faith because you hold on to your stuff and your things become so gripping. So when you lay all that together of a Gentile man without the ministry of the synagogue, without the memorization of scripture as a kid, with such wealth, Jesus looks at him as he's able to say those words, just say it, Jesus. And Jesus says, I am amazed. And then he turns around to those following him, mostly Jewish people who had all of the benefits that this Gentile did not have. And he said, hey, never seen this in all of Israel. You guys let a Gentile man show you up. Jesus was amazed. It says in verse 10, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus never met the centurion. Isn't that amazing? You're gonna feel like he did in the story if you never met him. Jesus never laid eyes on this servant, but the power of Jesus was to heal this man. And Jesus was interrupted, but he was amazed by the faith of this Gentile man. Faith, Jesus notices, is a humble faith. Faith, Jesus notices, is not a performance faith. It's not a faith from means. See, faith Jesus notices is is an internal faith, not an external faith. Faith Jesus notices is, it's a vertical faith. It's not a horizontal faith like the elders. Faith Jesus notices is a humble faith, regardless of whether you have means or influence or don't. It's about your hearts. It's about your perspective. Faith that Jesus notices is a humble faith faith, recognizing the greatness of him, the majesty, the power, the brilliance, the authority that he has. Though the centurion had some, in comparison, he had none. Oh, church, let me ask you a question. As you think about the story in the gospels, these simple 10 verses, I want you to think about your faith. Think about your, your heart and your motives. Do you kind of lean into, God, I've done these things, therefore I've deserved, therefore I've earned? Or is it a genuine, humble faith that acknowledges God is who he is and whatever he wants to do? While the centurion still appealed to Jesus, he made his request known. He didn't shy away from that, but he did it from a posture of humility and not a posture of arrogance and entitlement. May we have a humble faith of our need for him to call him Lord, not to say I'm worthy, but to say, Lord, I am not worthy. You are the only one that's worthy. Church, may we be people that run on this good news of Jesus daily. May we run on the track of the gospel daily. When we rise up in the morning, when we greet our family members, 
We head out for the day, back to school soon. Students are off to work, whatever it may be. May we run life on the track of the gospel, recognizing the greatness of our Savior, recognizing the greatness of who He is, and that we are just here to serve and to see how God wants to use us. Faith is strengthened by daily running on the gospel. Our faith is not strengthened by running from the gospel. May we run on the gospel every day.